Reason for God evenings. And these have been times where we've come together, we've tried to do it a little less uh, formally, and we've wanted to come to look at some key objections as to why people don't come to faith. We've been using the book The Reason for God by Timothy Keller, a Presbyterian pastor uh, in New York. And we've been using this book as our outline to, to try and help us all think a little bit more about certain issues that we face in the world uh, as we go about and t- share our faith and, and talk about what it means to follow Christ, but also for others who are asking questions and seeking what it means to be a Christian, what it means to understand this way of life that God calls us to. We've looked at a few things dealing with science, uh, dealing with uh, Christianity as a straitjacket. Tonight we're going to be thinking a little bit of the history of the Christian faith, and we're going to be tackling with the objection that you can't take the Bible literally. So we're going to be thinking about the Bible, Scripture, and what it means today. How we do this. I'm going to start in a minute to go in with the content that we have for tonight. We then break and we'll uh, sing a song. And if you've come prepared for your offering tonight, we'll lift that at that point. And then we're going to hand it over to you. We realize that in a half-hour content, it can be hard to sift through it to get questions. But we also want to give you the opportunity to ask questions, as we've done in other times together. And so Christoph has gone to uh, the installation and ordination of Graham McConville tonight. Uh, So Mark Scott has kindly offered to be the microphone holder and go round and see if anyone has any questions. I say that to encourage you that as I present what I have, as you're thinking through it, if there are questions, if there's things that need clarification, or if you have any comments that you want to make after it all, that'll be an opportunity uh, to do that, somewhere between a quarter and ten to eight. So let's start in. In 2003, a book hit the shelves that, in the opinion of many, has changed the world's thinking on Christianity. That book was called The Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. It wasn't a book that was written by a biblical scholar. It was pure fiction. But the world has taken it, has read it, has liked what it's read, and has believed certain aspects of this fiction. It has been a controversial but yet best-selling novel, and it is about a powerful secret that has been kept under wraps for thousands of years. And the secrets relate to the bloodline of Jesus Christ and claim that he married Mary Magdalene and had children, and that bloodline exists to today. I can't stress enough that the book is fiction, I have read the book. I have seen the movie. If you have done both as well, you will know the storyline changes halfway through whenever they get into the movie. So I don't know what that says about the book itself. But it raised three things, or challenged three things that the world took hold of. First of all, it said that Jesus lived a long and a happy life. He had a family with Mary Magdalene, and he died in old age in Palestine, and that the bloodline continues today. So that's the first thing that Dan Brown uh, puts across. The second thing is that the church, that is the Catholic Church, has been involved in a cover-up of this information and has also removed documents or gospels from circulation so to ensure that it has the power and the authority that it requires. And then thirdly, 
the novel raises um, the legend about the Holy Grail. And in it, it says that the Holy Grail or the Grail legend is very much alive, but it's not in a physical cup. It is rather in the body of Mary Magdalene that has been kept, uh, preserved, and is also the source of the bloodline of Jesus Christ. Why do people like, and why did the world like this? Because everybody loves a good conspiracy theory. Everyone loves a good attack at what is seen as the establishment. It's very clever. The novel itself is very clever because it uses small snippets of truth, an inch of truth, to draw people in, and then it takes them where it desires for them to go. But at the end of the day, The Da Vinci Code is still a novel, a work of fiction. It is not a historical or a scientific book. So why why take these first few minutes to talk about The Da Vinci Code? Because many scholars and many people believe that it has been the most controversial book published in recent times. It has been read by millions across the world And it has brought about a challenge to what is the truth of Scripture. It has made people question the truth of Scripture. And rather than leading them to a place that is truth, it leads them into a place where there is no truth and it's all fiction. Let's take a minute and let's read from God's Word. The Bible is there in front of you in your pew. And we're going to read from two passages, the first of which is 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17, and that's on page 1196. And then we'll move over to 2 Peter. And these two passages will set us off on our road this evening, and it will let us hear what the Bible says about itself. So 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 10 to 17 on page 1196. Just to let you know that letters to Timothy, the first letter to Timothy is about Timothy's job as an evangelist. It is what Timothy needs to do his job. And 2 Timothy is more a pastor letter to Timothy the person, how he lives his life as a follower of Jesus. Verse 10. You, however, know all my teaching, my way of life, my purpose, faith, patience, Love, endurance, persecutions, sufferings. What kinds of things happened to me in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra? The persecutions I endured. Yet the Lord rescued me from all of them. In fact, everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil men and impostors will go from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, Continue in what you have learned and have become convinced of, because you know those from whom you have learned it, and how from infancy you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. In this short passage, Paul is making it clear to Timothy where Scripture comes from and what its purpose is. Verse 16 tells us that all Scripture is God-breathed. 
It comes from God. It is his very being that is passed to us in this written form. And it has a purpose. Its purpose is for teaching us, rebuking us, correcting us, and training us in the ways of righteousness. For the purpose that all of us, everyone who is a follower of Jesus, may be thoroughly equipped for every good work that God would have for us. So Paul is giving Timothy great confidence in what he has been learning uh, and this scripture that has been passed to him, that it comes directly from God. The second passage is 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16 on page 1224. Second Peter chapter 3, verses 14 to 16. Page 1224, verse 14 says this. So then, dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, make every effort to be, spot, to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. Bear in mind that our Lord's patience means salvation, just as our dear brother Paul also wrote you with the wisdom that God gave him. He writes the same way in all his letters, speaking to them of these matters. His letters contain some things that are hard to understand, which ignorant and unstable people distort as they do the other scriptures to their own destruction. In the earlier part of this passage, in this chapter, Paul is talking about the final destruction and the life that is to come. But he's giving his readers assurance that what Paul wrote, as Peter is writing now, it is written with the wisdom of God. It's not from man. It's not man's wisdom, but it is God's wisdom. Therefore, everything recorded in their writings, the writings of the apostles, is from God and not from man. This may be well and good for the majority of people here this evening. We can accept what the Bible says about itself, that it comes from God, that it is useful for everything that that we read um, in the passage in 2 Timothy. We can also believe that those who wrote Scripture were inspired by God with God's wisdom. And we may say it's a very simple answer to this statement of being able to trust the Bible and to be able to take it literally. For the Christian, belief in the Bible is essential for their faith. But maybe you're here tonight and what I've read to you doesn't quite convince you. I mean, after all, how can we take, how can we trust a book about what it says about itself? Surely it's just put together by men who, who make it look that way. Well, tonight I want to challenge that thought that this wasn't just some book written to suit others and to suit particular agendas, but rather that it, Scripture itself isn't a stumbling block, but that it is something that we can trust in and we can move forward with. And we're going to look at it in four different ways. But overall, we're thinking of it historically. In our time together over the past few times that we've met like this, we've looked at what it means to look at faith from the scientific perspective by challenging the held belief that science has disproved Christianity. And so we move on to the next area, that is the history of this world, looking to see how History has challenged Scripture, but also how history supports Scripture. 
and we see that most plainly if you have read the book, The Da Vinci Code, how it uses history to disprove what we now see as the canon of Scripture. Many believe that the Bible is a gathering of historically unreliable legends that have been put together to ensure that the people who put them there remain in power, have a certain authority, and that they get to put forward their primary opinion. If you look at the Bible that is in your pew this evening, you will notice that it's quite a large book. And if we were to start in Genesis and go right through to Revelation, well, we could be here for the next couple of years to go through everything to prove and and talk about it. So rather than go through this rather large volume in one evening, we're going to look at the Gospels. We're going to take their perspective on the historical accuracy of the Bible. And by the Gospels, we mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And in these Gospels, we see the full account of the life of Jesus. Some would also say that the New Testament Gospels were written so many years after the events happened that the writer's accounts of Jesus' life can't be trusted. Either they have been highly embellished or wholly imagined. For others, they believe that the canonical Gospels were chosen over scores of other Gospels so that the early church could assert its power and authority. Just to let you know, canonical simply means what we find in our Bible today, the canon of Scripture we sometimes refer to. So if you hear that word used again, hopefully that will help you in understanding that whenever we talk about the canon of Scripture, we're talking about the order of the books of the Bible that we find in it. So let's look at four historical facts that may help us as we come to view the truth of the Bible. First of all, the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. The canonical Gospels were written at very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. And the majority of scholars would now agree with this. In the 1800s, there was arguments that that wasn't true. They couldn't believe that miracles and things that we read in the Gospels could happen. So they put them much later. But modern scholars of both sides of the theological spectrum would say that the Gospels were written at the very most 40 to 60 years after Jesus' death. The letters of Paul, one of which we read, were written just 15 to 20 years after Jesus' death, and they provide an outline of all the events of Jesus' life found in the Gospels. This is important to know, because it means that the stories of Jesus had been circulating. They weren't just kept in little corners but rather they were told and retold and retold again. They'd been circulating within the lifetimes of hundreds of people, people who not just heard them, but people who witnessed the events of the ministry of Jesus. Luke starts his gospel by saying that his work is recorded from eyewitnesses from the events that happened. A New Testament scholar, Richard Bauckham, has taken time to look into the historical evidence of the Gospels and has written uh, that his research found numerous well-known living eyewitnesses to Jesus' teaching and life events. And it had also been committed to memory. It wasn't just the eyewitnesses, but they had remembered and it had remained active in the public life of the churches throughout their lifetimes, serving as ongoing sources and guarantors of the truth of the accounts. 
For example, take Mark 15, verse 21. It tells us that the man who helped Jesus carry his cross to Calvary was the father of Alexander and Rufus. Why mention that? Why mention these two names of two people we know nothing about? Well, it means that Alexander and Rufus can confirm this. They can confirm this information that it was their father who carried the cross to Calvary of Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 15, 1-6, a book that we've studied quite a bit in our morning services, Paul tells us that Jesus appeared to his disciples and over 500 of the brothers at the same time. So Paul records that over 500 people witnessed the risen Christ. Why does Paul include this? He includes it so that the surviving witnesses could verify it. So that people could who have their questions, could go and say, well, did you really see it? And tell me your story. It's like us knowing where we were when major events happened. If I were to ask you, where were you on September the 11th, 2001? You probably could tell me. I could tell you, as a good boy that I am, I was wrecking a church, physically wrecking down some old bookcases with my former minister. Or where were you whenever you heard the news that Michael Jackson had died? I was in Moldova outside a cafe with some of the colleagues that I used to teach with in Balamina. It's natural for me to tell you where I was and if someone was with me, who I was with. Why? I'm hoping that it'll give my story a little bit more backing if you believe that I was with a minister whenever September the 11th happened and also with some colleagues whenever I heard the news that Michael Jackson had died. It's a natural thing for us to share these stories and to include those who we were with. And so it is in these accounts. Eyewitnesses are included so that they can verify what is true. The documents that we have in our New Testament, in the Gospels, were for public consumption. They weren't put together and then put away in a library. These were active letters that traveled, either as one letter went round from one church to the next or as duplicates were made very carefully so that the letter could go to, to other churches as well. They were to be read and reread throughout the churches in what was the known world. So the writers of the documents include historical information so that the witnesses can testify to the truth. Can you imagine that this information wasn't true? It wouldn't be accepted. The church would never have grown And Christianity would never have taken its hold as it did. For the people who were the first hearers of this, it must have been true for them to believe it because there was so much detail in there of actual historical events. And it wasn't just the disciples. It wasn't just the in-club of Jesus, but it was wider. Those 500 people, we have no idea who they were, but it's a lot of people And they weren't just the disciples. There are other claims that books are gospels. The most famous being the Gospel of Thomas. These are known as Gnostic Gospels. The Gospel of Thomas is translated from the Syriac and can be dated to traditions in 175 AD, more than 100 years after the time that the canonical Gospels were in widespread use. 
Adam Gopnik in the New Yorker wrote that the Gnostic Gospels were so late that they no more challenged the basis of the church's faith than the discovery of a document from the 19th century written in Ohio and defending King George would be a challenge to the basis of American democracy. These Gospels were written written later, and we'll come to, to look at them and think about them a little bit later. But they offered no, at the time, vital challenge to the Gospels that we know today. So the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John were recognized as authoritative eyewitness accounts almost immediately. That is why Irenaeus of Lyon in 160 AD declared that there were four and only four Gospels. So that's the first thing to look at, that the timing is far too early for the Gospels to be legends. The second thing, the content of the Gospels is far too counterproductive for the Gospels to be legends. As I mentioned earlier, the working theory of many people today is that the Gospels were written by the leaders of the early church to promote their policies, to consolidate their power, and to build their movement. The theory doesn't fit in at all with what we actually find in the Gospels. Whenever you were at school, I'm sure one of the things you had to do was write a story. You had to come up with something from your own imagination. For me, I was fascinated by islands and pirates. The good boys and the bad boys. There would always be a nice little harbour town that was the safe place. And of course, the pirates would always live in a wee dark cove that had many caves. Did I ever make the pirates the good boys? No. But did I sell the good boys in the town? Of course I did. They were the heroes. They were the ones who were the centre of the story, the good guys. But if you were writing a story to ensure authority and power, and if it was particularly to ensconce your authority and power, I imagine that the Gospels wouldn't be it. Firstly, Jesus doesn't take sides in debates that had been happening in the church. So if we believe the Gospels and Scripture to be, have been written and constructed for later times to consolidate this power, surely you would want your key figure to be coming down on key issues that were raging in the church. Secondly, your main character is crucified. Early readers would have seen this as justification that this was a criminal. Thirdly, the main character is weak. In the Garden of Gethsemane, take this cup from me, or feeling abandonment on the cross. Then if you were at this particular time in history, why would you invent women as the first eyewitnesses to the resurrection? Women whose testimony didn't even count in court? Why depict the disciples and leaders of the early church as petty and jealous, almost impossibly slow-witted, and in the end, cowards who either actively or passively feel their master. Whenever you think about it, it's not the kind of heroic story you would want to construct if you wanted to ensure your power and authority. I mentioned the Gospel of Thomas. Well, the Gospel of Thomas and other books like it express a philosophy called Gnosticism in which the material world is a dark, evil place 
from which our spirits need to be rescued by secret illumination, or the Greek word is gnosis. This fitted very well with its time. If you know anything about the Greek and the Roman culture, you will know that it loved philosophy. It loved to talk. It loved to debate. But it's utterly different from what was the experience of first century Jews and their world of which Jesus was part. The canonical gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, do not suck up to the rulers of the ancient world. Rather, their positive view of material creation and their emphasis on the poor and the oppressed offend the dominant views of the Greco-Roman worlds. These gospels give a far more historically credible picture of what the original Jesus was really like. And these gospels boldly challenge the worldview of their Greek and their Roman leaders. So that's the second thing. The content is far too counterproductive for the Gospels to be legends. Thirdly, the literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be legend. We all are familiar with the name C.S. Lewis, a world-class literary critic. When reading the Gospels, he noted, I have been reading poems, romances, vision literature, legends and myths all my life. I know what they are like. I know none of them are like this. Of this gospel text, there are only two possible views. Either this is reportage, or else someone on, some unknown ancient writer, without known predecessors or successors, suddenly anticipated the whole technique of modern novelistic, realistic narrative. Lewis is basically saying that ancient fiction was nothing like modern fiction. Modern fiction is realistic. It contains details, contains dialogue, and reads like an eyewitness account. Everything's there to draw us in so that we can empathize or emotionally attach ourselves to characters, that we can go through the experiences that they're feeling. In ancient times, romances, epics, or legends were high and remote. Details were spare and only included if they promoted character development or drove the plot. So the Gospels are not fiction. They include so much detail that fiction in that time period would not have included. For example, Mark 4, Jesus was asleep on a cushion in the stern of the boat. Quite a lot of detail. John 21, Peter was a hundred yards out of the water when he saw Jesus on the beach. He then jumped out of the boat and together they caught 153 fish. John 8, Jesus listened to the men who caught a woman in adultery. And we are told, what did he do? He doodled with his finger in the dust. We don't know what it was. We don't know what it contained. But he doodled in the dust. These are eyewitness accounts. The only explanation can be that it is information retained in the memory of those who witnessed it. 
We have gone away from what perhaps Ireland was a hundred years ago with a strong oral tradition. But in oral tradition, there is care, strong care and attention to the passage of accurate information. As it moves from one generation to the next, nothing must be left out and nothing must be added in. The closest that we can get today is African culture. If we think about what happens in current oral traditions in African tribes and cultures, we get a little snapshot of what it was like in biblical times. Kenneth E. Bailey is a a theologian and a researcher who has spent so much time in Africa and the Middle East researching that kind of life, very rural, very basic, we would call it primitive. And from that he has drawn so much of what the original meaning of Scripture has for us. He has said that oral tradition, as it is passed from one generation to the next, it's not just a story, but it is history. It is this history of a people group that whoever is passing on this information is proud of, who wants to defend, and who won't be afraid to tell of its not-so-good moments and will celebrate in what is good. So the literary form of the Gospels is too detailed to be a made-up legend. Then finally, the culture of the Bible is for its own time, but its lessons are timeless. For many, their problem with the Bible is that it contains outmoded and regressive teaching. It seems to support slavery and the subjugation of women. These positions appear so outrageous to contemporary people that they have trouble accepting any other parts of the Bible's message. We need to understand that we cannot transplant our idea of culture into the meaning of biblical culture. We are too far removed geographically in history to take a simple understanding of meaning. So let me give you the example of slavery. Ephesians 6 verse 5 says that slaves must obey their masters. For us today, the closest that we understand slavery is either the slave trade of the 18th century that was a kidnapping of Africans to places around the world or child trafficking today. That's the image that we have of slavery. So whenever we read passages like Ephesians 6 verse 5, that's automatically where we go because it's what we know. Unfortunately, neither the 18th century slave trade or child trafficking today give an accurate picture of what this term means in Ephesians. In the time of the New Testament, there was not a great difference between slaves and the average free person. Slaves were not distinguishable from others by race, speech, or clothing. They looked and lived like most everyone else and were not segregated from the rest of society in any way. From a financial standpoint, slaves made the same wages as free laborers and therefore were not usually poor. Also, slaves could accrue enough personal capital to buy themselves their freedom. And most important of all, very few slaves were slaves for life. Most could reasonably hope uh, to have their freedom within 10 or 15 years, or certainly by their late 30s at the latest. 
Whenever we think of slavery in the context that we know it in the 18th century, it's very different. For that, slavery was not, as we now understand it in the biblical way, about the possession of someone's um, abilities. But in the 18th century, slavery was the possession of the whole person, their rights, their freedom. Slavery was the most unbelievable thing that human nature could do, as we know it in the 18th century. But to read that into the verse in Ephesians does not help us understand what the truth of the message is. You see, some texts do not teach what they first appear to teach. But the question comes, what if there are texts that, after careful study, still seem outrageous and regressive to us? Well, I suggest we need to look at the Bible from a wider perspective. Timothy Keller, who we've been using quite a bit in this series, believes that in our thinking, we believe we have reached the cultural pinnacle. We are progressive And everything else that has gone before is is regressive. We look back at the ways of our grandparents and think of them as quaint and outdated. And we consider where we are now to be in that place that is a pinnacle in culture. But whenever we consider our grandparents, we don't seem to consider our grandchildren or those of that generation to come and what they will think about us and our so-called progressive ways. I lead a Scripture Union residential camp each year, and it amazes me how quickly I am becoming outdated and how unprogressive I am in the eyes of our 13-year-olds. If I want to be kept firmly on my feet in my thinking of culture... And if I think I've reached the pinnacle of culture, one week in the summer is enough to bring me back down to earth with a bang. We are nowhere near the pinnacle of culture. In a few years, we will not be progressive. We will be seen as regressive, as quaint and outdated. And so this is how we need to look at Scripture We cannot come with an arrogance that says, I have now reached the pinnacle of my thinking or of my cultural understanding, and therefore I understand Scripture completely. Rather, we need to look at the major themes of the Bible. Look at it and focus on that rather than focusing on the things that are not of primary issue. If you live in East Belfast, you may have visited Avenue Leisure Centre, I have frequented their swimming pool quite a bit as I have learned how to swim. I have liked Avenil's swimming pool because it has two shallow ends. It means that I can get into the water safely without the fear of drowning. But if you're an expert swimmer and you dive into either of those ends of the swimming pool, you're going to come to a very sharp stop in that three foot of water. We all know that we don't jump or dive into the shallow end. But in Avenil swimming pool, right in the middle is its deepest part, which is fine for me because it's still only five foot, so I know I'm not going to drown. For some, it's a bit of a, a problem. But at least if you dive into that, even five foot, 
you will not come to a sharp stop. Rather, you can get in and enjoy that depth of water that is there for you to swim in. And so it must be as we come to look at the Bible. It's not about jumping into the shallow end and getting caught with all the the minor things. Because when we do, we will most certainly come to a sharp stop. But rather we get into the body, the depth of what is the Bible. We jump into the deep middle of what the Bible says to look at the deity of Christ, his death and resurrection. Keller says, it is therefore important to consider the Bible's core claims about who Jesus is and whether he rose from the dead before you reject it for its less central and more controversial teachings. Even the Christian church debates and argues over these not-so-important, less central, controversial teachings. But the Christian church, in the depth of what is the truth of Scripture, as we find it in our creeds and the writings that the church agrees on regarding Christ, his life, his deity, his death and resurrection, that's where we need to be looking to be confident in what Scripture says and what Scripture is. So let's finish off. Have you ever seen the movie The Stepford Wives? If you haven't, the Stepford Wives were the wives of husbands of Stepford in Connecticut who decide to have their wives turned into robots who never cross the wills of their husbands and look beautiful all the time. A Stepford wife was a Stepford wife was wonderfully compliant and beautiful, but no one would describe such a marriage as intimate or personal. We are called to a personal and intimate relationship with God through Jesus Christ. The Christ that we read in the Gospels. This means that like normal, personal and intimate relationships, we will receive criticism. We will be contradicted by the one who loves us and cares for us. If our relationship with God is like this, then we must allow him to speak to us in this way. It's for our benefit, as Paul writing to Timothy reminds us. God has been before time and will be through eternity. When we start to look at the Bible and dissect it and interpret it in the way that pleases us, then we create a Stepford God. A God essentially of your own making and not a God with whom you can have a relationship and genuine interaction. It has been once described that if you take the Bible and take out the bits that you don't like, you'll still be left with a Bible, but you must remember it's your Bible of your thinking and not what is true. So only if your God can say things that outrage you and make you struggle as in a real friendship or marriage, then you will know that you have got hold of a real God and not a figment of your imagination. An authoritative Bible is not the enemy of a personal relationship with God. It is the precondition for it. Folks, we've looked in the half hour or so that we've had together about the accusation that you can't take 
the Bible literally? I believe we can. I believe that what we find in the Gospels is true. And because we find the Gospels true, then we can believe the rest of what is contained within Scripture as truth. Because Christ himself even quotes from other parts of Scripture. Scripture. 